0: Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decimal Podcast. We spend a lot of time on Dewey Decimal discussing and analyzing issues pertinent to libraries in the United States. And as yes, we should, we are the American Library Association and American Libraries magazine after all. That said, international librarianship is very much on our radar. ALA has an international relations office that works to increase the association's presence in the global library community and manages our international library activities. We're present at the IFLA World Conference each year, the Sharjah International Book Fair in the United Arab Emirates, the Guadalajara Book Fair, and on and on. We do outreach and relief work for libraries around the world. Because regardless of where we are physically, either in the US or at a library in Scotland, Malaysia, Brazil, Cuba, New Zealand, wherever, we all share the same core values and a belief in the importance of information access for all. Today, the Dewey Decimal Podcast steps out onto the international stage. First, I've talked with Sandra Uringamana, author of How Dare the Sun Rise Memoirs of a War Child, which chronicles her life as a survivor of the 2004 Gatuma massacre in Burundi and as a refugee in the United States. Sandra and I discuss her book, The Plight of Refugees in the U.S., and the importance of books and learning in her life. Next, American Libraries' Associate Editor and Dewey Decimal Foreign Correspondent, Tara Denkowski reports from the 2017 International Federation of Library Associations and Institutions, or IFLA, World Congress in the Poland, where she talks to librarians from around the world about cataloging, LGBTQ issues, and much more. And finally, I talked to acclaimed author Kwame Alexander about Leap for Ghana, a program that he co-founded in 2012 that's working to build a library for a small village in Eastern Ghana. But first, a word from a sponsor. We all know about Hoopla, right? Of course. Hoopla Digital is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, full music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters to best-selling artists and authors, uh, but not just the hits, you can also find niche and hard-to-find titles as well. You'll you'll find them all on Hoopla. Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everyone. And today, that includes kids with the new Hoopla Kids Mode setting. Hoopla Kids Mode is the gateway to a multi-format family digital media experience. All the content books, videos, and music has been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. Check out the Hoopla Kids mode on Hoopla. For more information, you can find that at HooplaDigital.com. At age 10, Sandra yurin witnessed the murder of her younger sister, several family members, and scores of others at the hands of rebels who slaughtered 166 refugees living in a camp in Burundi. 13 years later, she chronicled that night and its continued effect on her life in the book, How Dare the Sun Rise, Memoirs of a War Child. It's a harrowing story of loss and survival, but also of finding hope and meaning through tragedy. I sat down with Sandra here in Chicago this past June to discuss her book, her life in America, and the impact of libraries and education on her life. I just finished your book last night, and it's, it's wonderful. Thank you. It really is. I loved it. It's, you. Your story is incredible. And I was struck by something in at the, at the chapter where you were discussing your, your, your sister's wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, and you mentioned that uh, it felt so much better when I let my feelings out instead of trying to keep them all bottled up. Um, was writing this book a part of that process of, of letting your feelings out? What inspired you to write How Dare the Sun Rise?
1: It's definitely a part, it's been a part of my healing process, um, and I didn't really expect it to be. I thought I was just going to write a story, but the more we wrote, it was like we dug deeper and things that I didn't even know I was feeling came out. So it's been a very healing experience, a very difficult experience, but the inspiration behind it all was, of course, my sister Deborah. And, um, it's kind of a book to, to commemorate her life and to make sure that she's never forgotten and to make sure that all the survivors are never forgotten. Um, and that's always been my goal in my activism and also with this book.
0: Yeah, it must have been extremely cathartic. I mean, there, there are events that uh, you reveal in the book that you said you never talked about before, so I can imagine. Where did the, the title of the book come from, How Dare the Sun Rise?
1: Um, how dare the sunrise comes from um, I think this is chapter 12 it's we're talking about I, I was talking about the morning after the massacre and how it just seemed like the world kept on moving and I felt like my world had stopped, but everybody else like they showed up to work, people went to markets, doctors did their job, journalists did their jobs and i couldn't believe that. Like, the day just went on as the day before and all the days before that. So How Dare the Sunrise is me just screaming out into the world saying, how can this be? Like, how are you not paying attention to this?
0: Um, you talk a lot about a book. when you first came to the US, you experienced a lot of um, cultural assumptions that people in the United States had of Africa and the view because of <laughs> From Africa. You mentioned that uh, he would ask you, do you wear shoes over there, and a lot of ridiculous things, I guess, in hindsight. But was that part of the, the, your inspiration to write the book as well, to kind of expose people to a culture that they might not be familiar with?
1: For sure. I think, you know, one of the things that um, really convinced me to write the book was I kept doing these talks and then meeting people who just had absolutely no idea what was going on outside of their own personal bubble? And when I would talk about like massacres that are happening today, people would look at me with this like shocked face. They like can't believe that mass killings still happen, um, or that you know racism and discrimination are still things that people experience on a daily basis. And so. For me, it was kind of like, okay, well, somebody needs to show um, this world that I'm in that, you know, the world is much bigger than this, and there there are issues that are going on that we need to pay attention to. Um, of course, you know, I'm an activist, so I'm always looking for ways to kind of open people's eyes and get them to care a little more um, about the current issues that we're facing. Um, and the book was just very timely as we, I think, as a nation, we were just questioning a lot of things. We all wanted to know some answers and um, there was a lot of talk about refugees um, coming into the country. We were talking about, um, you know, how, do, how is it that we can stop bad people from coming but also let in good people. And this book was kind of like, hey, look, refugees are just looking for a place. To live, and they're just like you and me. They all have dreams, like you and I. Um, so, yeah, so the book was kind of, it's for me, I look at it as a tool for people to use to kind of, um, if you're looking for um, where to begin and how to go about interacting with people who are different from you, who have dif- different experiences from you. Um, I just wanted it to be there so that. can go back and say wow okay so this is her experience Um, it's probably similar to a lot of people in this situation
0: yeah i was really struck by the um the chapter where you discuss where you um, spoke before choir performance and Mm -hmm. you you said it was the first time you really publicly spoke about your experiences and uh, you just let it all out and you were struck by the reactions from the people hearing your story um you know also i Think about that chapter, and also think about your your photography work. Um, is did you were you drawn to photography maybe for that same reason as a as a visual medium to, yeah. to tell your story?
1: Yeah, it all goes back to me wanting to, you know, express this idea of like, you know, we're all so much more connected than we think, and. I don't share my story for sympathy and I don't think that anybody who's gone through what I've gone through wants sympathy, but we just want understanding. We want people to care and to know that, you know, this is happening and we should pay attention to it. We can't just turn a blind eye because it's too far away. And so with photography and everything that I've ever done has always been how do I connect This issue to the community that I'm in. How do I make sure that, you know, my neighbors are opening their eyes to this issue? How do I make sure that they're, you know, going out there and engaging, like in real time, with this issue?
0: Now you you mentioned this just a little bit briefly here, um, but the the I guess the refugee situation is, is. it's very big on the news right now. And I guess you do mention this a little bit in the book. Um, how can you see the, the resettlement process? What improvements can be made um, to that whole process?
1: I mean, it, I understand why it takes so long to resettle refugees. Um, it is, you know, it's, it's about safety, and I understand governments taking all necessary measures to ensure that we're letting in good people in the country, and, you know, what a lot of people don't know is that it really does take so long. It's not just a one-step process, it's like 5, 10, 20-step process, depending on the case. Um, And what can be improved, I think, the language around how we talk about refugees. It leads people to believe that, you know, a refugee just goes to a UNHCR door knocks, and next day they're on a plane to America or Canada or whatever and that's just not the case and in terms of once they're already resettled um, I think people just need to realize that okay this is someone that's coming that has been forced out of their home and now they're in this new place and if you're wondering how do I interact with that just try to imagine yourself in their shoes how would you want somebody to approach you what would you want done to you? How would you want people to help you? Um, yeah. So those, those are simple changes that we can all help make in the process. Um, the agencies that accept refugees are often you know, understaffed and you know, they have a lot of cases, so they can't always be on top of everything. But I think it's our duty as neighbors um, to help out and to, to make sure that we're lending a hand because it's not you today, but it could be you in the future.
0: Um, now the book itself, when I uh, was doing some research, I guess this this could be more of a marketing thing. It was a, it was, a uh, it was a conscious choice, but I guess it's it's um, marketing towards the YA, the young adult market. Um, was that a conscious choice to to write a book for teens and younger readers um, to kind of reach ch- children re- readers at a younger age? Because it's 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 funny, um, not funny, but like as I was reading, there are. You know, there's the story of of what happened in, 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 in um, Katumba and oh, sorry, Yeah,
1: he's right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh,
0: and and your resettlement, but it's also it's it's a very teenage story. Mm-hmm. Um, you you um, you worry about boys and going right. out and going to dances and getting your, your first exactly. tattoo. Um, so it's a very relatable story for for children. Is was that was that a conscious choice?
1: Yeah, i try to be as authentic as possible. Um, I know that what's lacking in activist books, uh, it's always that connection to like, humanity. Like, you know, we can write a sensational book about an event and make it dramatic, but I thought it was more important to portray everyday life so that people can really see just how similar you are to someone that you feel so disconnected to an issue that you feel like it's too far away from you Um, and I think that's that's my favorite part about this book is that I it was able to just be what I wanted it to be and there was like no fluff it was everything that I was going through I tried to um, get it down on paper and so far I am very happy with the response. Uh, you'll be surprised how much people just love reading that, you know, their experiences. You know, they see themselves in, an, in a story and they're like, wow, okay, I do that. I worry about that. And all of a sudden, they feel a lot more comfortable to come and ask me questions uh, uh, about more important issues.
0: Yeah, I think there's uh, you know, familiarity with someone Once you break down that, that wall of, of difference. Like you said, we're all the same. Yeah. and, um, it, and it, 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 it's an intense read but it's also there's some funny parts in this book I think <laughs> oh thank really, you i'm so
1: glad you caught that <laughs> and
0: because i, I wrote a, a line down that cracked me up when i read it and it said you think the president would have some decent airflow when you're talking about meeting yeah oh, president obama it was
1: so hot in that room <laughs> and i was like it's it's the president can we get some air conditioning in here <laughs> yeah.
0: i love that and i think that's something that you know i think is important it's, it's an important part of your book um
1: Thank you, Sandra. Oh, awesome.
0: Thank you so much. Yeah. That, was, that was a great interview. It was fun. <laughs> How can you transform library data into impactful services? What feature do libraries value the most when evaluating information sources? Which were the most popular interlibrary loan titles for the last five years? What does S.R. Ranganathan, the father of modern library science, had to say about shyness? All these questions have been explored on the OCLC Next blog. So many libraries operate on behalf of a very local, specific audience. Whether you're in a public library serving one town or city, or an academic library taking care of your students and faculty, you best understand your users' needs. But that can be a challenge when it comes to synthesizing trends among libraries of different types, sizes, and countries. And that's where OCLC Next comes in. Because of OCLC's global reach, staff and member leaders from many disciplines are exposed to developments and ideas that reach across the entire library community. Uh, they wrap their thoughts into quick, compact posts in order to share knowledge from the world's libraries with you. So check out oc.lc slash next to read the latest post or subscribe to a weekly email. The Ithlo World Congress is an incredible affair, with thousands of librarians from around the world gathering to network and share information, best practices, and more with colleagues. The 2017 Congress was held in Rockwell, Poland this year, and American Libraries Associate Editor and Dewey Decimal Foreign Correspondent Tara Dinkowski was there to talk to attendees about issues affecting the global library community. Here's her report.
2: Um, I'm here with Siri Gaski from the National Library of Norway and uh, she just uh, gave this wonderful presentation um, uh, as part of an IFLA session and she talked about um, a joint bibliography that uh, her national library is doing um, with uh, other libraries. So, um, Siri, just to um, give people a sense, um, who are the, the Sami people and um, what is the Satmi region?
3: The Sami are an indigenous population from the north of Norway, Sweden, Finland, and part of Russia. And the Sapmi, or Sapmi is the nation that we've lived in, which comprises most of Norway and a fair bit of the north of Sweden, a
2: bit the north of Finland and then a tiny smidgen of Russia as well. And um, the, the joint uh, bibliography project, you mentioned um, the four nations um, contributing entries. Um, can you explain a little about how entries are being standardized across a management system or across uh, these four different languages that people are speaking or um, with, even with different search terms? Uh, how, how is that kind of working for you guys? What happens with the joint bibliography is that each country catalogs
3: their, their material as usual, as they would do, and then BIBSIS, which is organizing the technical aspects of the bibliography, they take, they export those files and then import them into the joint system. And in doing so, we've landed on a base level of information that we'll be presenting. So it's not the complete catalog record of each country because there are some differences in what kind of material or what what each country has cataloged and that sort of thing. So we included what we think are the most important aspects of being able to search and discover things within the joint bibliography. And then if you find anything of particular interest, you can go to the different bibliographies themselves to see the entire record.
2: That's, that sounds like still quite the undertaking, though. <laughs> even though you've explained it so simply and I know in your presentation you said like um, if you waited to do something about it, it would still take 20 years to kind of do a project of this, um, of this caliber, that still sounds like a lot of work.
3: Yes, and I think we've been lucky because for us it's mostly well because the National Library of Norway has been responsible for this for the creation of the joint bibliography, and we've been lucky in that we've been cooperating with Bibsys in Norway and what, for for all the technical aspects. And what we've done is we've said we would like to be able to do this and this, and at a minimum we need so and so. Yeah. and if you could also include this and that, that would be ideal, but if you can't, then that's okay. Yeah. And then they've done it, so. That's wonderful. So for the actual technical
2: parts of it, we just made wish lists and then hopefully had them come true. And, um, and how was it decided that the, the Library of Norway would be tasked, the, the one tasked with managing it?
3: uh, There are a few different reasons for that. Part of it is that the majority of the Sámi population is based in Norway. The majority of the Sámi publishers are also based in Norway. So we have a lot more materials coming in than the other countries. And also the Sámi bibliography in Norway is the only one that's based entirely under the rule of the national library. So we have access to more resources and we have a larger, we have more people at our disposal to do technical work and to make decisions that this is a thing we're going to focus on. And actually, because we've been discussing the joint bibliography since the early 90s, but in 2011, the culture department in Norway decided that this is going to be a priority and that's going to be something that's going to happen
2: and once you have a department of the state saying that yeah. this is going to happen then that's wonder like how why why is it suddenly a priority to them what, what do you think happened
3: i'm not quite sure for the exact reasons but i think it's also because for the last few decades uh, the borders between the separate countries have been eased up, and so there's been more cooperation on all levels, which makes it easier to argue for the need of also making this part, making it a joint bibliography and showing off all all the results and not just whatever we
2: have in our own countries. Yeah. Um, and I know you said in your presentation you're not handling much of the technical side, but um, what do you think are some of the limitations to using mainstream classification systems for indigenous populations? Um, I think you mentioned the Louvre classification too, and is that unique to the Sami, and how is that developed?
3: Yes, well, I guess it's anyone who's used Dewey for any kind of very special classification discovers it's you need to get very far into the specific numbers to get anywhere and to show off anything and that means it's difficult if you want to find information easily because you have to be able to at a certain level understand you and be able to read it which most of us aren't. So what happened with specifically the Love classification system was that it was created by Anders Love, who worked with one of their earlier versions of the Sámi bibliography. And he decided that he needed some sort of classification system that was based around what you would need to classify as part of a Sámi bibliography. And so he's placed extra importance on whatever areas Are of interest. Like we have reindeer husbandry, we have dujjivist, which are the Sami handicrafts, and you have yoik, which is a specific form of Sami music, and all that kind of thing, which is very easily accessible. Because love itself is created as uh, you have numbered categories, and then you have lettered subcategories, and then under that, you have another set of numbered subcategories. So you might end up with, for example, a result like 18 b one which is a lot easier than
2: whatever the corresponding number would be in GUI. That's kind of how I remember taking notes in school, you know, like when they teach you how to outline something and it it just seems more natural.
3: Yes, I think it's more natural and it's also, it's a lot easier to explain, especially maybe to people who have no knowledge of how classification works and then you can tell them, well, this is the category and then you divide that category into these categories and then there you have your result but that does mean that for example in dewey you have i can't quite remember what we call it but you have for example technical terms in some sort of scientific category which is all in one major lump which would make it useless for a technical library of any sort yeah but for example in I think in the joint Sami bibliography we have about 65 results for that kind of thing because in that aspect we would only take whatever is te- about technical issues you would only take the things that are in Sami
2: which means that there aren't very many yeah. Um, And so what are the next steps for this project? It sounds like you guys launched it this year, and there's the the four different um, kind of uh, four different libraries are contributing, or or nations are contributing um, to the results in one system. Um, So where would you like to see this go? Would there be translations improved, expanded? Well, yes, definitely, because
3: as of right now the bibliography is available in Northern, Sámi, and English because those are two languages that we hope everyone searching in the bibliography would be able to read either one of those and so part one thing we definitely want to do in the future is to make the bibliography available in more of the languages all the majority languages of the separate countries and then hopefully also more of the Sami languages of the region. And then another thing is that because each country catalogues everything according to their own rules and they all use their own majority language, in Norway we catalog everything in Norwegian of course, which means that you have subject headings and that sort of thing are all in their separate languages and as of yet we don't have any kind of translation between that. So one hopeful step for the future would be to be able to create some sort of system to map all of those together so that you would get all of the results regardless of what bibliography they come from and then you would just choose your material based on which languages you're actually able to read and not which languages you're lucky
2: enough to do your research in. Yeah. Um, this is all very wonderful and very ambitious. Um, just as a close, do you, uh, could you t- give a message to IFLA attendees and in Sammy? Landal ejun was this Ifla Congress
3: y the H Lamush who so mayom daibu not the backdrop to Lotus
2: Bas Muya Hava. And and what is what did you say? <laughs> Am I supposed to tell you that? <laughs> I, I, There's no way I can Google that.
3: <laughs> you can try. Uh, I said this is my first, first IFLA Congress and I'm having a lot of fun and I hope I get the opportunity to come back at some
2: point in the future. Thanks. Um, Anne, can you introduce yourself, tell our listeners where you work?
4: Uh, so my name's Anne Reddacliffe and I'm the convener for the LGBTQ um, User special interest group at IFLA.
2: Excellent. And I saw a wonderful uh, presentation yesterday. Um, the, the issues uh, ranged, I think, based on kind of the, the climate and the countries uh, that were being represented. So we had uh, gender inclusive uh, restrooms uh, from the U.S. Um, and then compare that to something like uh, the Russian Federation where, uh, you know, some of this research is being done, you know, uh, it, it's very closed and, you know, uh, authorities are monitoring it. So um, how did you
4: go about um, picking some of the participants for that session? Okay, so that's a good question. So when we received the proposals from our call for proposals, um, we were very conscious of the fact that we wanted to have a number of different countries represented. So we did have a lot of proposals come from America and Canada, um, but we were particularly interested in having an international focus. So our theme was intersectionality, um, but we wanted to look at intersectionality in different countries, so in the international arena. Um, so that's why we did select the panel presentation, which included people from Russia and Poland as well, um, because we wanted a different sort of perspective on LGBTQ issues um, as opposed to simply an American perspective or simply a Canadian perspective. We wanted to make it a more worldwide sort of focus. So we did put a lot of time and energy into selecting the presentations, but obviously we were very conscious of what topics people were presenting about as well. Um, and with the intersectionality theme, um, we wanted to look at um, different types of intersectionality, so one of our speakers talked about um, LGBTQ communities and the deaf community, Um, so we selected that presentation because it sort of looked at a different aspect of intersectionality as well. Yeah, I had no idea that... um the deaf
2: LGBTQ community as a result of, you know, not having information, uh, kind of catered and curated for them, you know, have higher incidences of sexual transmitted disease. And, you know, that's, that's kind of staggering to me that that's such an oversight in, uh, our culture. And then even in a country where I think, you know, they're kind of further along than other countries, you know, there's still stigma and taboo. So I found that very fascinating. Um, what what is the climate like in australia right now you did you mention that marriage equality is kind of
4: very like you're on the verge of it maybe that's it yes (laughs) so um so yeah it's quite a political issue at the moment um our government has just announced that there will be a postal vote on marriage equality um so people will be able to vote yes or no in favor or not in favor um, there's there's a lot of politics around the postal vote as well. Um, a lot of people think that that's not the fairest way to to go about doing things, um, and so it's been a matter of um, LGBTQ community has had to you know encourage people to it, make sure they're enrolled to vote, make sure that their address is updated on the electoral roll, so that they actually receive the materials to vote. Yeah, um, and our um, Library Association is currently um, encouraging people to find out more about the postal vote and really promoting, informing people about it and making sure that everybody has the right sort of information so that they are actually able to vote and they will vote um, because it's part of our democratic right that we can vote. Yes. um, But because there's been a lot of politics around the postal vote, um, there's a bit of... um, not apprehension to vote but maybe just a bit of apathy about voting and people have sort of thought well wouldn't it be nice if the government would just go ahead and legalise same-sex marriage you know why do we have to spend all this money on a postal vote and all the campaigning Um, so yes I did mention that in the session yesterday that um, so um, same-sex marriage is currently not legalised in Australia but obviously the We feel like the majority of the population supports it. It's just that things get held up at the government.
2: So what are some of the things, uh, you said they're encouraging people to vote, but... have libraries been there kind of every step of the way providing safe spaces and programming for for this community how, how does uh, how do Australian
4: libraries really um, reach out uh, to LGBT community members that's a great question so um, I know there have been some libraries that have done specific programming for LGBTQ communities for instance um, where I live in Sydney the city of Sydney library um, does quite a few events and programs around um, LGBTQ issues, so recently they had one around um, young adult fiction for LGBTQ audiences, Um, so so they held a a panel session with um, authors who had written LGBTQ-themed books for for young adults, Um, and they held a a panel session for people to come along and listen to. They also had a um, session about um, the LGBTQ deaf community in Australia as well. Um, and so they had a speaker come along and speak about the sorts of issues that LGBTQ deaf people face. Um, so that's the City of Sydney library, one of our public libraries. Um, and there's various other, uh, there's a lot of public libraries in Melbourne as well that have done um, LGBTQ um, programs. There's one that has a book club for LGBTQ people. There's also a public library in the um, Land that has an LGBTQ um, book club for Indigenous people. So, um, so again, that's looking at those issues of intersectionality. So what is it like to be LGBTQ and Indigenous, for instance? Yes. So, um, so, yeah, I guess they, they sort of reach out to the LGBTQ community um, in terms of programming, events, book clubs, uh, but also just trying to have strong LGBTQ collections as well. Um, so a lot of public libraries in Australia use the rainbow stickers on their books so that the LGBTQ-themed books are easily identifiable. Too. okay
2: and last question i yes. promise are you enjoying yourself at IFLA this year or is this
4: how many have you attended so far oh i'm very much enjoying myself this is my first if- oh my gosh so, yeah it's and this is a pretty one. great one to it attend it's awesome yeah. it's awesome and i love broadswald too yeah. it's a fantastic city so it is. yes i've had nice? the time of my life yeah lovely yeah yes so. beautiful beautiful city yeah thank you so much Anne. thank you for having me thank you
0: Kwame Alexander is a poet and author of several children's books, including the Newbery Award winner, The Crossover. After a visit to Konko Village in eastern Ghana in 2012, where he saw community yearning for more, Alexander was moved to form Leap for Ghana, a multi-phase literacy, school improvement, and youth empowerment organization that has dedicated itself to building a library in that village. I spoke with Alexander recently to, to learn more about Leap and to get an update on its work.
5: Well, mate, thanks, thanks so much for joining the Dewey Decibel podcast this morning uh, to talk about the Leap Initiative.
6: Thank you for having me, man.
5: Absolutely. Um, now, before we before we uh, get into it, actually, I think we should probably start with a little bit of background um, about Leap. It stands for Literacy Empowerment Action Project, and it started in 2012, um, back when you uh, you and Tracy Charles McGee, author Tracy Charles McGee, uh, were in Ghana. Um, what did you see uh, in Ghana, in Konko Village, that led you to start this initiative?
6: Well, I saw, you know, through my Western eyes, what I deemed was a lot of poverty. I saw, you know, um, I saw children having to walk a couple of miles to get water. I saw, you know, classrooms with no walls and no ceilings. and And I saw one book. In a in a school of two hundred kids, and I saw smiles and hope and and love and kindness and joy and all the eyes and the and and the smiles of each of the children. And I thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. Amidst all of this, that there's this uh, this there's such kindness. And I thought maybe there's something I can do. I can offer. To sort of match that hope, those smiles with some resources. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe I can be instrumental in providing some resources um, whether it be books, whether it be a library, whether it be water um, just to help make, you know, you know, help do my part to make the world a better place in particular this village of oh.
5: Um So I guess um why why a library i mean, what what do libraries i guess what do libraries mean to you and why was it important for you to build a library in Conco?
6: well again, you know having been a writer for twenty years written books and and being uh you know a part of the book industry, my life has been you know um all about language and literature for so long it's 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 my job it's my passion it's it's my hobby you know it's my vocation and my advocation it's, it's what i love to do and i i want everybody to sort of have that opportunity to you know um read between uh read the pages of a book and discover you know magic and possibility and and be empowered by the words on the page and i know what it's done in my life like poetry you know poetry i tell i tell this story all the time. All the time how poetry sort of saved my life gave me life you know poetry made me cool you know poetry got me married poetry hmm. is just, you know words were the thing that sort of you know empowered me and transformed me into who i am and and i want everybody to be able to experience that and so when i saw that these kids in this village didn't have they had one book in their classroom, and you know and books and stories you know weren't you know, an integral part of, of what was happening. Um, I knew, I thought that maybe this could be one step towards making things, um, you know, better. And I, I didn't talk to anybody. I just said, you know what? We're going to do a library right here. We're going to provide books. We're going to let these books be mirrors for these children, let these books be windows so they can see outside of their village and see what's possible really around the world, in the world. And... And so I began this process, this this journey of building this library, and and uh, it was you know four or five years. And so this past August, you know, was supposed to be the unveiling of the library. And I took about twenty five people with me to Ghana. I was all excited to see this beautiful structure and see. And we had five thousand books. And oh wow! And we got and we got there. we were having a ribbon cutting. And we got there, man. And and the library had no roof. And, um, and it just, it was maybe halfway done. And it was just so frustrating for me. I had gone the day before to sort of check things out before I brought everyone. And it was just devastating for me. And I just didn't understand how it hadn't been completed yet. And, and so I had to sort of adjust and and make some changes because these people had been donating and people were coming to expect to see this library, and which we all thought were done. And so I, I had to adjust and sort of make this a, a ribbon cutting for phase one. So the structure looked beautiful. There were these amazing columns. You could see where the different rooms would be, the children's area, the the resource center. And, and I began to talk to the villagers and I said, you know what, I'm just trying to understand y'all why. We've been putting a lot of work in this. Why isn't it done yet? And, and people were saying, well, we're working on it and we're trying to get it done. And I, and, and was, and I said, well, didn't y'all want this as much as I did? And it was, it was the first time I asked, did they want it? Mm-hmm. And, and the response was, yeah, it was sort of lukewarm. And I said, well, is there something you wanted more? And nine out of 10 people were like, well, what we need is a health clinic. What we need is a health clinic. We, we need medicine. And it just hit me. You know, as, as Westerners, we go on these missions, we go overseas, we go to these developing countries to try to save the people and and bringing what we think they need. And, and we never ask what they want. And so it was in that moment where it sort of hit me. Well, the library is not done because it's not supposed to be a library only. It's supposed to be a library, community center, slash health clinic. Mm-hmm. Supposed, to, it's supposed to be what the people need and what they want. So I'm really happy that it sort of had that evolution, and 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 we're working on on this sort of full holistic approach because health is a literacy issue. Like you oh, wow. can't teach you can't teach a kid to read if he's if he's sick. You can't teach a kid to to write if she's dead.
5: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wanted to talk a bit about that because it's. LEAP is about much more than the physical building itself because you do offer other uh opportunities for, for these kids in the village, um scholarships and workshops, et cetera. Can you talk a bit about that?
6: Yeah. Um uh, Prior to me going to the village, apparently there hadn't been a girl to go to high school in, in 10 years. And high school cost about $1,000 a year, which is more than most people make in a year. Their salaries, and so very few girls had gone to high school, and 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 they just become domestic workers after sixth or seventh grade. And so we started a scholarship fund to raise money, and and so we sent about ten kids to high school. Um, um, in 2000, we sent one girl in 2013, and in 2015 we sent ten kids to high school, and this year we'll send more. So. That's exciting to be able to send kids off to to further their education and hopefully go on to college and and come back to their communities and, and and help uplift it. Um, and then training teachers to teach reading and writing, you know, that's a big thing. One thing to provide the books in the library, but teaching them, you know, how to do read alouds and, and modeling those kind of things is important as well.
5: Oh yeah. Now, now you mentioned that you um. Phase one, I guess you can consider phase one is complete, but obviously that you need phase two, phase three, et cetera. How do people get involved? If there was someone who who's listening to this and they wanted to get involved with LEAP, what's, um, what would you recommend for them to do? What steps can they take?
6: Um, Leapforgana.org, L-E-A-P-F-O-R, org is a great place to go and get more information on joining us on our next trip next summer. Information on donating. Um, so those are those that that's a great sort of starting point is going to the website, finding out more information and being able to, to kind of show your support in that regard. Oh, excellent.
5: Um, so Kwame, what's, uh, outside of LEAP, what's, um, what's in the future for you?
6: Well, right now, man, it's really interesting because I'm, I'm out on book tour and, and discussing the new novel, which is called Solo which uh, oh, okay. is set in, in Hollywood and in Ghana. So I'm able to use a lot of my experiences that I've had with children and, and interacting with people in Ghana in this new novel, which is which is about rock and roll music and and, and about the power of music in our, our lives, which is a big thing in, in Africa. Um, and so I, I was glad to be able to tie in, you know, my journeys to, to Ghana into this novel solo.
5: Oh, excellent. When does that come out?
6: It came out August 1st, and it's available wherever books are sold and wherever you can check them out. So go visit your library.
5: Absolutely. Kwame, again, thanks so much for joining us today.
6: Thank you.
0: That wraps another episode of the Dewey Despo podcast. I'd like to thank Kwame Alexander, Sandra Uyengamana, and our colleagues from IFLA 2017 for joining us. Please, come back next month as Dewey Decimal ventures to an unknown, mysterious realm that we've not yet explored for a Halloween episode. I can't say much more than that for a fear of ruining the surprise, but please, you got to tune in for this one. You will not regret it. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Stop by, tell us how we're doing, uh, what you'd like to hear from us. iTunes users, please give us a review if you can. Your words and rating help us in the rankings and allow us to reach more ears. If you have questions... Drop me an email at deweydecible at ala.org. I promise I'll get back to you. Until next month, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast.